Book Two, Chapter One, Sections One through Three of *The Food of the Gods and How It Came to Earth* by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Catherine Eastman. Book Two, The Food in the Village, Chapter the First, The Coming of the Food. One. Our theme, which began so compactly in Mr. Bensington's study has already spread and branched until it points this way and that, and henceforth our whole story is one of dissemination. To follow the food of the gods further is to trace the ramifications of a perpetually branching tree. In a little while, in the quarter of a lifetime, the food had trickled and increased from its first spring in the little farm near Hickleybrow, until it had spread, it and the report and shadow of its power throughout the world, it spread beyond England very speedily. Soon in America, all over the continent of Europe, in Japan, in Australia, at last all over the world, the thing was working towards its appointed end. Always it worked slowly, by indirect courses, and against resistance. It was bigness insurgent. In spite of prejudice, in spite of law and regulation, in spite of all that obstinate conservatism that lies at the base of the formal order of mankind, the food of the gods, once it had been set going, pursued its subtle and invincible progress. The children of the food grew steadily through all these years. That was the cardinal fact of the time. But it is the leakages make history. The children who had eaten grew, and soon there were other children growing and all the best intentions in the world could not stop further leakages and still further leakages. The food insisted on escaping with the pertinacity of a thing alive. Flour treated with the stuff crumbled in dry weather almost as if by intention into an impalpable powder, and would lift and travel before the lightest breeze. Now it would be some fresh insect won its way to a temporary fatal new development, now it would be some fresh outbreak from the sewers, of rats, and such like vermin. For some days the village of Pangbourne in Berkshire fought with giant ants. Three men were bitten and died. There would be a panic, there would be a struggle, and the salient evil would be fought down again, leaving always something behind in the obscurer things of life, changed forever. Then again another acute and startling outbreak, a swift upgrowth of monstrous weedy thickets, a drifting dissemination about the world of inhumanly growing thistles, of cockroaches men fought with shotguns, or a plague of mighty flies. There were some strange and desperate struggles in obscure places. The food begot heroes in the cause of littleness. And men took such happenings into their lives, and met them by the expedience of the moment, and told one another there was no change in the essential order of things. After the first great panic, Catterham, in spite of his power of eloquence, became a secondary figure in the political world, remained in men's minds as the exponent of an extreme view. Only slowly did he win a way towards a central position in affairs. There was no change in the essential order of things. That eminent leader of modern thought, Dr. Winkles, was very clear upon this and the exponents of what was called in those days progressive liberalism grew quite sentimental upon the essential insincerity of their progress. Their dreams, it would appear, ran wholly on little nations, little languages, 
little households, each self-supported on its little farm. A fashion for the small and neat set in. To be big was to be vulgar, and dainty, neat, mignon, miniature, minutely perfect, became the key words of critical approval. Meanwhile, quietly, taking their time as children must, the children of the food, growing into a world that changed to receive them, gathered strength and stature and knowledge, became individual and purposeful, rose slowly towards the dimensions of their destiny. Presently they seemed a natural part of the world. All these stirrings of bigness seemed a natural part of the world, and men wondered how things had been before their time. There came to men's ears stories of things the giant boys could do, and they said, Wonderful! without a spark of wonder. The popular papers would tell of the three sons of Kosser, and how these amazing children would lift great cannons, hurl masses of iron for hundreds of yards, and leap two hundred feet. They were said to be digging a well, deeper than any well or mine that man had ever made, seeking, it was said, for treasures hidden in the earth since ever the earth began. These children, said the popular magazines, will level mountains, bridge seas, tunnel your earth to a honeycomb. Wonderful, said the little folks, isn't it? What a lot of conveniences we shall have! And went about their business as though there was no such thing as the food of the gods on earth. And indeed, these things were no more than the first hints and promises of the powers of the children of the food. It was still no more than child's play with them, no more than the first use of a strength in which no purpose had arisen. They did not know themselves for what they were. They were children, slow-growing children, of a new race. The giant strength grew day by day. The giant will had still to grow into purpose and an aim. Looking at it in a shortened perspective of time, those years of transition have the quality of a single consecutive occurrence. But indeed, no one saw the coming of bigness in the world, as no one in all the world till centuries had passed saw as one happening the decline and fall of Rome. They who lived in those days were too much among these developments to see them together as a single thing. It seemed even to wise men that the food was giving the world nothing but a crop of unmanageable, disconnected irrelevancies that might shake and trouble indeed, but could do no more to the established order and fabric of mankind. To one observer, at least, the most wonderful thing throughout that period of accumulating stress is the invincible inertia of the great mass of people, their quiet persistence in all that ignored the enormous presences, the promise of still more enormous things that grew among them. Just as many a stream will be at its smoothest, will look most tranquil, running deep and strong at the very verge of a cataract, so all that is most conservative in man seemed settling quietly into a serene ascendancy during these latter days. Reaction became popular. There was talk of the bankruptcy of science, of the dying of progress, of the advent of the mandarins. Talk of such things amidst the echoing footsteps of the children of the food. The fussy, pointless revolutions of the old time, a vast crowd of silly little people chasing some silly little monarch and the like, had indeed died out and passed away. But change had not died out. It was only change that had changed. The new was coming in its own fashion and beyond the common understanding of the world. 
To tell fully of its coming would be to write a great history, but everywhere there was a parallel chain of happenings. To tell, therefore, of the manner of its coming in one place is to tell something of the whole. It chanced one stray seed of immensity fell into the pretty, petty village of Cheesing Eyebright in Kent, and from the story of its queer germination there, and of the tragic futility that ensued, one may attempt, following one thread as it were, to show the direction in which the whole great interwoven fabric of the thing rolled off the loom of time. 2. Cheesing Eyebright had, of course, a vicar. There are vicars and vicars, and of all sorts I love an innovating vicar, a piebald, progressive, professional reactionary, the least. But the vicar of Cheesing Eyebright was one of the least innovating of vicars, a most worthy, plump, ripe, and conservative-minded little man. It is becoming to go back a little in our story to tell of him. He matched his village, and one may figure them best together as they used to be on the sunset evening when Mrs. Skinner, you will remember her flight, brought the food with her all unsuspected into these rustic serenities. The village was looking its very best just then under that western light. It lay down along the valley beneath the beechwoods of the hangar, a beading of thatched and red-tiled cottages, cottages with trellised porches and pyracanthus-lined faces, that clustered closer and closer as the road dropped from the yew-trees by the church towards the bridge. The vicarage peeped not too ostentatiously between the trees beyond the inn, an early Georgian front ripened by time, and the spire of the church rose happily in the depression made by the valley in the outline of the hills. A winding stream, a thin intermittency of sky-blue and foam, glittered amidst a thick margin of reeds and loose strife and overhanging willows along the centre of a sinuous pennant of meadow. The whole prospect had that curiously English quality of ripened cultivation, that look of still completeness that apes perfection under the sunset warmth. And the vicar, too, looked mellow. He looked habitually and essentially mellow, as though he had been a mellow baby born into a mellow class, a ripe and juicy little boy. One could see, even before he mentioned it, that he had gone to an ivy-clad public school in its anecdotage, with magnificent traditions, aristocratic associations, and no chemical laboratories, and proceeded thence to a venerable college in the very ripest Gothic. Few books he had, younger than a thousand years, of these, Yarrow and Ellis and good pre-Methodist sermons made the bulk. He was a man of moderate height, a little shortened in appearance by his equatorial dimensions, and a face that had been mellow from the first was now climacterically ripe. The beard of a David hid his redundancy of chin. He wore no watch-chain out of refinement, and his modest clerical garments were made by a West End tailor. And he sat with a hand on either shin, blinking at his village in beatific approval. He waved a plump palm towards it. His burthen sang out again. What more could anyone desire? We are fortunately situated, he said, putting the thing tamely. We are in a fastness of the hills, he expanded. He explained himself at length. We are out of it all for they had been talking, he and his friend, of the horrors of the age, 
of democracy and secular education and skyscrapers and motor cars and the American invasion, the scrappy reading of the public, and the disappearance of any taste at all. We are out of it all, he repeated, and even as he spoke, the footsteps of someone coming smote upon his ear, and he rolled over and regarded her. You figure the old woman's steadfastly tremulous advance, the bundle clutched in her gnarled, lank hand, her nose, which was her countenance, wrinkled with breathless resolution. You see the poppies nodding fatefully on her bonnet, and the dust-white spring-sided boots beneath her skimpy skirts pointing with an irrevocable slow alternation east and west. Beneath her arm, a restive captive, waggled and slipped a scarcely valuable umbrella. What was there to tell the vicar that this grotesque old figure was, so far as his village was concerned at any rate, no less than fruitful chance and the unforeseen, the hag weak men call fate? But for us, you understand, no more than Mrs. Skinner. As she was too much encumbered for a curtsy, she pretended not to see him and his friend at all, and so passed, flip-flop, within three yards of them, onward down towards the village. The vicar watched her slow transit in silence, and ripened a remark the while. The incident seemed to him of no importance whatever. Old womankind, ere perennius, has carried bundles since the world began. What difference has it made? We are out of it all, said the vicar. We live in an atmosphere of simple and permanent things, birth and toil, simple seed time and simple harvest. The uproar passes us by. He was always very great upon what he called the permanent things. Things change, he would say, but humanity ere perennius. Thus the vicar. He loved a classical quotation subtly misapplied. Below, Mrs. Skinner, inelegant but resolute, had involved herself curiously with Wilderming's style. 3. No one knows what the vicar made of the giant puffballs. No doubt he was among the first to discover them. They were scattered at intervals up and down the path between the near down and the village end, a path he frequented daily in his constitutional round. Altogether, of these abnormal fungi, there were, from first to last, quite thirty. The vicar seems to have stared at each severally, and to have prodded most of them with his stick once or twice. One he attempted to measure with his arms, but it burst at his Ixian embrace. He spoke to several people about them, and said they were marvelous and he related to at least seven different persons the well-known story of the flagstone that was lifted from the cellar floor by a growth of fungi beneath. He looked up his sourby to see if it was Lycoperdon chelatum or gigantium. Like all his kind since Gilbert White became famous, he Gilbert Whited. He cherished a theory that gigantium is unfairly named. One does not know if he observed that those white spheres lay in the very track that old woman of yesterday had followed, or if he noted that the last of the series swelled not a score of yards from the gate of the cattle's cottage. If he observed these things, he made no attempt to place his observation on record. 
His observation in matters botanical was what the inferior sort of scientific people called a trained observation. You look for certain definite things and neglect everything else. And he did nothing to link this phenomenon with the remarkable expansion of the cattle's baby that had been going on now for some weeks. Indeed, ever since Cattles walked over one Sunday afternoon a month or more ago to see his mother-in-law, and hear Mr. Skinner, since defunct, brag about his management of hens. End of section 3